0: away knowing you don't actually belong and you'll always wonder when they'll realize it too and they always do. So I don't dream of a beautiful exsanguination. I dream of an honest one where our blood is all the same and the words that flood our pages make us feel like we have finally found a home in each other and it brings us back to life again. For those of you who may not know, my parents are deaf. People like me are called CODAs, which stands for child of a deaf adult. The poem I just read to you is about my experience as a CODA trying to function in a hearing world. And as a CODA, I've spent my entire life unknowingly moving between two cultures. And when I was a kid, I've always felt like I didn't belong. I always knew that I was different. And now at 22 years old, I know that that difference I've always felt finally has a name, CODA. As a CODA, I've been asked to do things most kids are never asked to do for their parents. But having that life experience has also exposed me to a lot of things that most kids aren't exposed to. And one of those things is oppression, both experiencing it and seeing it. Most people don't realize that the deaf community is an oppressed community. I think many of you would be surprised at just how much a well off, relatively attractive white man can actually experience oppression firsthand when he doesn't have ears that function like yours do, when he didn't grow up in a culture like you did. One of the places I have frequently and quite sadly seen oppression of the deaf is in the church. Now, I have spent a lot of time going back and forth about the direction to take this message, but And I could stand up here all day and spit facts at you, but I really felt like God wanted me to focus on love and to challenge each person in this room to love the deaf. Intentionally. To love deaf people intentionally. Again and again, I have witnessed the deaf be turned away from a church because of the cost of a qualified interpreter while they simultaneously spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on improving and expanding their own facilities. New buildings, a nicer parking lot, fancier lights, these are all things I have seen be prioritized over the salvation of a deaf soul. I've talked to people who profess Christ as their savior, who try to tell me that deaf culture is a subculture, like blind people have or amputees have, and oh, how tragic their conditions are. And yet they never take the time to actually listen to what the deaf community has to say. I've heard so many Christians say, I can never learn sign language. I've seen Christians judge certain religious beliefs my mom holds after having been the very ones to turn her away from access in their church and in the same moment walk away saying, but we love you. However, our actions speak words louder than I love you ever could. And I have watched the church time and time again say the very opposite of love to the deaf community. And I'm on this stage today because I believe that the people in this room are the next leaders of the church. So I implore you, begin to be a different church than the deaf have met in the past. A church that loves deaf people. When you tell someone that you cannot afford to provide them with access to the gospel, you are putting a price tag on their eternal souls. Why is it that the church doesn't seem to ever put a cost on belief and salvation until the person asking for it needs you to try a little harder? Mark sixteen fifteen commands every Christian, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The deaf are God's creation, for whom he too gave his one and only son that they may not perish but have eternal life. One of my favorite poets, Levi the Poet, recently came out with a new album called Cataracts. And in his album, he talks about struggling with his faith, and he says, when I stopped believing in God, I blamed it on him and thought, well, if this is what you want. But at the end of the album, at the conclusion of the album, he says, if it were not for love... I would have never, ever come back. How many of you know that you are sitting in this room because a Christian loved and invested in you? Because a Christian was intentional about how they loved you? I know that that's true for me. If we're going to fulfill the command given to all Christians in Mark 16, then we, the church, must begin to be intentional about loving the deaf community. And let me be perfectly clear. This challenge is not for those of, just for those of you who are going into ministry, but for every single Christian, because Mark 16 is a command for every single Christian. So again, I implore you today, will you be a different church than the deaf have met in the past? In one of Levi's newsletters, he shares a quote by Ron and Vicki Burks from their book Damaged Disciples. They say, Rage is what happens in our soul when it awakens from living a lie. It doesn't help to deny it. My prayer is that the people in this room will wake up to the deaf community, enraged by the fact that less than 2%, less than 2% of deaf people are saved in America. That one day the deaf will enter into any church and not be turned away for the sake of comfort or a nicer facility that their culture will be acknowledged and supported by the church, and that their salvation will no longer carry with it a price tag. Every person in this room has the opportunity to begin striving to become that church. So again, I implore you today, because being deaf is not a reason anyone should go to hell. Thank you.
1: Chapel's gonna be already so good. Um, she read that to us last night. And our, when we talked about planning this service, we wanted to just be real. We wanted to be honest. We wanted it to be raw. And so I have a question for you today Did you ever find yourself in a situation and ask, How did I get here? This past summer, I went to Uganda, and we were working with the School of Business and teaching uh, business training, and it was awesome. But when we weren't doing awesome things and we weren't napping, um, I found myself sitting in a kitchen on this little stool talking to Esther and Mayan and I was just talking to them about their culture and their life and there's these two Ugandan women and um, I was just trying to learn and I was trying really hard to be intentional about not just coming back and we're we're exhausted so I was trying not to just like go to bed and like so I was trying to talk to them and at one point they're cooking and they're like we're gonna make fried chicken tonight so why don't you come outside with us so I was like okay you know I get it okay Um, and so I go outside and Esther's like, oh, I'm going to call the chickens, and she literally does a call that I cannot repeat, like, I can't do it, but, like, the chickens run to her, like, there's this huge yard, and they run to her, and I'm like, have they not learned that this is like their call to death? Like, how do they not know what that call means? And so, I'm just like just watching like okay, so she calls the chickens over, we get a chicken, she like wraps it up, she puts it in a little bucket and then she starts boiling a pot of water. And she's like, "Okay, now follow me again." So, I'm like, "Okay, I'm like staying like a healthy distance away." And so she brings me to this hole in the on the side of the in this in the yard. And um, she, little did I know at that time that that hole was a graveyard for the chickens' heads that they eat. So, um, so she gets one chicken and she's like, come on, come on, watch. And I'm like, okay, like I'm watching. And so she, she steps on the wings and she begins to pull out the feathers around the neck. And I'm like, okay, I know it's happening. It's fine. It's like, it's okay. And then she takes out a knife. And now maybe in your head, you had imagined like an ax. That's what I had imagined for some reason. Um, But she takes out this small, dull knife. Like little one that you like cut vegetables with anyways and so and so she stretches out the chicken's neck and she slowly begins to saw this chicken's head off now I'm at turmoil within because I'm like on one hand I really want fried chicken on the other hand I'm watching a murder take place and so I'm just like I don't know what to do and, and anyway but this is this so she kills the first chicken we have a second chicken and so she says okay come here and I'm like okay I should have known I should have known where this was going. she goes, step there, okay, and step in there. Like, I, oh, she's just, she's just like messing with me. She's just making me get really close and like uncomfortable. And then she puts the hand in my, in the knife in my hand. And I ask myself, how did I get here? But there was no going back at that point. Otherwise, the word for white person is Mazungu. I'd be some coward Mazungu, And I was like, I, I gotta go forward now. So. I, so she teaches me, she pulls out the feathers around the neck, and she teaches me how to stretch out the neck so that it's easier to cut off the head of the chicken. But it just so happens that the way you stretch the neck and angle it allows the chicken to make direct eye contact with you. <laughs> I kid you not. I'm like, this is the most insane. I, I So I'm looking at this chicken's eye like, I know what it's about to happen. You know. And so I begin sawing, again, like you have to pressure because it's this dull knife. I begin sawing off this chicken's head, and like the only thing that keeps me going is the fact that I'm like, I can't leave it half severed, like I can't stop now, and so, so I cut off the chicken's head, I threw it, but I didn't step in the right place. I stepped on the legs, and and. If you didn't know, it's true that a chicken can still move without its head cut off. And so I stepped on the legs, but I didn't step on the wings. And so the wings flap, and I get blood splattered all over my feet and skirt. And I literally am like, this was a murder. I just, I'm guilty. But I share this story with you today because when we talk about culture and when we engage with cultures that are different than ours, it can get messy, It can get hurtful. It can get bloody. And so I want to invite you all today to engage with me and to get a little messy, to get a little bloody, because there's something, there's a great reward that can come out of that. For us, it was amazing fried chicken. For today, hopefully it will begin a process of, of healing and conversation that brings us closer to the Lord. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to pray. We're going to get started. And if you guys want to start turning to Isaiah 1, that's where we're headed. So, dear God, I do pray that your words today will be my words, that you will just minister, that your will will be done here, that you will be glorified, and that, again, healing and reconciliation and, and things that we cannot do on our own will begin today in your presence. And just, again, let us be honest and real and get to know you. In your name, amen. All right. So Isaiah chapter one. Um, So, Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. And, okay, I'm a pastor's kid, so when I turned to Isaiah this random day that I was reading the Bible, I knew that. I said, okay, Isaiah, the prophet. And then um, it says, actually, in the first verse, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah saw during the reigns of Uzziah. And so, okay, I'm looking at this, and then I read next the caption, you know, the little title, and it says, a rebellious nation, and so again, I'm a PK. I grew up in the church. I've heard a lot of these stories, and so I think, okay, I know Isaiah is a prophet. I know that in Jerusalem and Judea, that's where the Israelites live. That's God's chosen people, and then I see rebellious nation, and I go, I know them, them back and forth, rebellious people. They're probably being sexually immoral, you know, doing bad things on the weekends, worshiping Baal. Like, I know what this passage is going to say. Pretty much, like, I already got it pegged. But as I began reading, I was just, God, you know, confronts you sometimes in your pride and says, you don't know what you're talking about. Anyways, um, that's a different sermon. But in verse 11, this this is how Isaiah is describing the Israelites right now. It says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood." Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight and stop doing wrong. I was in my dorm room as, as I read this verse, and I had to take a moment because I had this epiphany that this is me. I, they say, you know, they're going to Sabbath. They're offering sacrifices. They're going to youth conventions and chapel every day, and they even are raising their hands in worship but God says, I hate it. It's detestable to me. Get it out of my sight. And so, and then, so I'm certain, I'm like, God, like, what, did they, what were they doing wrong? What, what's going on? Because this sounds an awful lot like me. So if I'm doing the same thing, what could I be doing wrong? And in verse 17, it says this, learn to do right. Seek justice defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. In Isaiah, the same chapter, verse 3, it says, my people do not understand. And it goes into this, how they're doing all these worship services. They're having all these chapels, but they don't get it. It's meaningless to me because they don't know me, They don't know where my heart is. And if they did, it would look like seeking justice and defending the oppressed. So today we're going to talk about what does seeking justice look like? In Hillary Leeper's "God in the Gospel Class," she uses a term: perfect unity and perfect diversity. And I think that's ultimately what ultimate true justice and peace looks like. It looks like perfect unity and perfect diversity. And this is true. Not, this is not only important to God, but in, in in His kingdom, but important to who He is, and us worshiping Him and bringing meaningful praise when we come into our services and when we gather. So in Galatians 3, 26 and 28, there's a verse and it says, you are all one in Christ. You are not male nor female, Jew nor Greek, or Jew nor Gentile, and slave nor free. And again, I was a pastor's kid. So when I first read this, I thought, what does this mean? Um, Does this mean we're all like, we don't have any genders or cultures in God. Like we come in and we're just like these little ghost-like beings that are all the same and just like sing praise to worship. But no, this passage the author directly confronts the major cultural divisions of that time he's saying he's saying I can imagine him saying it's not Jew and Greek it's not slave and free it's not male and female these major divisions he's saying no we're all one in Christ the culture of Christ the thing that is important to his kingdom is unity but it's not just unity it's not unity in us being all the same In Revelation 7, 9, it says, the author writes, I saw a great multitude of people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue praising the Lord. So we know that in the end, there is still diversity. In the end, we might still be singing in different languages, but we are unified because we worship and praise the same God. Perfect unity in perfect diversity. It's not about ignoring diversity. It's not about overlooking it. It's about celebrating it and welcoming it as part of the body of Christ. Who? Even the Trinity, again, this is, this is important not only to His kingdom, but to who God is. Even the Trinity is an example of perfect unity and perfect diversity. That each aspect is different and distinct, but they are unified in one. If we are to bring worship that is meaningful, we must celebrate. We must seek perfect unity and perfect diversity. It's important to who God is and the kingdom that he brings. So how? How? How do we do this? And I'm going to share with you three short things that we can begin doing to seek after this at North Central. Now, I want you to understand that if this is the race to perfect unity and perfect diversity, that this is how much progress my three steps will help us make. (laughs) That this is a complicated and deep issue and it and there are wounds and there needs to be grace and there needs to be listening and it's going to be hard and it might get a little bloody but we need to start doing something so one I met with a Desiree Leibingen. She she's an incredible woman meet with her talk with her get her heart um, but I said okay where do we start what do we do and she shared with me the first thing that we need to do is lament we need to lament. We need to become broken-hearted for the things that God is broken-hearted for. We need to come together. We need to mourn the 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 part that we've played in injustice, the part that we've played in hatred, the part that we've played in division. And we need to allow God to break our hearts, burden us for the people around us, again, that he has created as fellow image bearers, that these are our brothers and sisters. This is family. And so we need to become brokenhearted for them. We need to lament. We need to lament because when we understand who God is, when we get to know that he's brokenhearted for the the diversity of the body of Christ, then we have the conversation differently. We talk differently to one another. We'll be more gracious towards one another when we both come from a foundation of Christ. So first, we need to lament. Second, we need to educate ourselves. In an age of technology and information and access to education like never before, we no longer can plead ignorance to a problem. We need to educate ourselves. That's a personal responsibility. It's not about saying, well, they didn't offer programs. They didn't do this enough to teach me. It's time to educate ourselves. Recently, I was actually listening to a podcast, um, Code Switch, and we're actually going to provide some resources to you um, on the, in the cafeteria and all that stuff, um, but recently I was listening to a podcast, and it's called Racism is Killing Me Inside, and it literally talked about how microaggression actually causes this term called weathering, that when a person of color consistently you know, goes out and f- fears for their life, whether it's going to an expensive store and the security person approaches them, or whether it's being pulled over, this consistency in their life that causes stress actually weathers their body and makes them more susceptible to fatal diseases. That's incredible. We need to educate ourselves and look and see how deep the problem goes. So we need to lament. We need to get on the same page with God. We need to educate ourselves. And finally, we need to embrace the awkward. My youth pastor back home is, uh, his name is Clark. He's Haitian. And I adore him because I grew up in this youth group that was so diverse. And I had no idea the blessing that that was at that time. Like, it was just normal. It was so normal to go and to see all different. We had like, and it was so normal to be friends with them. It was so integrated. And we just had this understanding. And it was such a powerful time in my life because I was seeking after Christ with all these different people, with all these different ideas and perspectives. And our youth group was growing and strong because we were including everyone in the body. And so this past Christmas break, I, I was at home and I met with him. And I was like, how did you cultivate a youth group like this? How did like teach me so I can learn? And so... And he literally said, you've heard me say it before, embrace the awkward. And this is biblical because I was, again, reading the Bible the other day, and there's a story, and it says that a deaf man was brought to Jesus, and they asked Jesus to heal him, and Jesus stuck his fingers in the man's ear. How awkward. How uncomfortable. Another story, a blind man's brought to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't do the whole, like, hand in his eyes, like, be healed. He takes some dirt, spits in it and puts it on the man's eyes. How awkward. But both men walked away with a miraculous healing. What can happen when we decide to embrace the awkward? When we decide to embrace awkward conversations, difficult situations, difficult times and being uncomfortable because you know what I believe that miraculous healings can come out of embracing the awkward. And so with the rest of our service today, we are actually going to spend time allowing us to begin doing these three steps. We're going to have Michael, you can start coming up if you want, and we're going to actually have a time to lament. We're going to have a time to become brokenhearted for what God wants. And, and we're going to have people on the sides who can pray for you. You can come to the front. You can pray in groups. You can pray individually. But I beg you, I don't know how... How, how much this issue matters to you, I but I beg you to spend time in prayer becoming brokenhearted for the things that God is brokenhearted for, to care about each member of the body of Christ, to care about perfect unity and perfect diversity, and let's start as a church doing what is right and seeking justice. And so, as Michael begins to worship, we're, again, we're going to have a time of prayer and lamenting, but we're also going to have a time of celebration. Because like I said, when, when every member is included, we should celebrate because we will be a better body of Christ for it. There's a reason to be joyful when every person can come and find freedom and find life and find joy in the body of Christ. And so I'm going to actually be closing out in prayer and Michael's going to worship, and like I said, in the calf, there's going to be some resources of, of podcasts, of movies, of books, of things you can do to begin taking your steps to seek justice. But again, it starts, it starts, it has to all come from Christ, because only with him will true peace, true justice, true reconciliation be found. So seek justice with me today, would you? Dear God, I do just pray that you will be glorified. God, that you will be honored, God. I pray that during this time we will amend for the part that I have played in injustice, for the ignorance that I have had, for the members that I have overlooked or ignored, God. I pray that you continue to break our hearts for this issue, God, that if anyone is apathetic in the room and and thinks this doesn't matter, God, that they will find a glimpse of you and that this matters to who you are and the kingdom you want to create here. God, I pray that we will seek with all our might perfect unity and perfect diversity. God, that this is something we will strive for, something we will be intentional about. And God, that again, it will be compelled by your love and who you are that we do this, God. I pray just yeah, as a body that you break us, God, that you align our hearts with yours, God, that this will be real, that it will be messy, that we won't be afraid to embrace the awkward and hard and difficult conversations. I pray for grace like never before, God, so that we can have these conversations, so that there can be healing of wounds that run so deep, God. I pray that there will be healing so that we can go forward, that we can see something new at North Central, that North Central will grow and be empowered because we We are including every member of the body of Christ. God, I pray just for your will to be done, for you to be glorified in us today, God. In your name, amen. Amen.